I hope so anyway, uh, for Let's Talk It Over 5, which uh, tonight is going to focus on debt. What is debt um, and what being in debt means and what in a way we can do to, to change that. Uh, as usual, we've got an amazing panel of guests. Um, hello, guests. Hello, Astra. Hello, Jayati. And Yanis, I'll say hello, but I obviously don't consider you as a guest, you're a host. Um, so the guest, um, Astra Taylor is a writer, or you are a writer, a filmmaker, and you're the co-founder of the Debt Collective, which is a union for debtors, and we will talk about this and you will explain to us what, what is the Debt Collective. And your new book is Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions. So, hi again, Astra. Thanks, Thanks. for joining us. Thanks for having me. <laughs> we also have um, Jayati Ghosh with us. Um, Jayati, you are an Indian development economist. You taught economics at JNU for 35 years. That's in New Delhi. Uh, you're now professor of economics at University of Massachusetts. Um, in the United States of America. Thanks, Yanis. <laughs> so, um, as I explained, we're going to focus on debt. Um, I, I was going to say debt is your thing, Yanis, uh, one of your things, but obviously you, you are an, an expert and people probably realize why. So, uh, by the way, sorry, before we go, um, I, I don't like doing my YouTuber thing or whatever, but if you want to like the video, if you want to subscribe to the page, that's always amazing because more people get to see the video this way. Um, but then, Yanis, so you, you, you've chosen, in a way, the title, Debt as, as Power. So why, and, and, and in a way, what is debt, debt for you? Well, thank you, Frank. Uh, it's wonderful to be here tonight, this morning, this afternoon in the United States with Jayadi and Glastra. Yeah, I mean, I'm an expert because uh, in 2015, I was the finance minister of the most bankrupt country in the world, uh, negotiating with the most powerful creditors in the world, the International Monetary Fund, the European Central Bank, you know, the United States government, uh, to some extent. Uh, and I remember during the, that period, um, Jayari, I don't know whether you know that, you probably don't. Another Indian economist, uh, Amartya Sen, mm. uh, sent me a note while I was in the midst of these negotiations. And he said, I don't envy you because you are probably the first person uh, ever to be negotiating with creditors who don't care about their money, who don't want their money back. Uh, and I, th I think that's a good introduction mm -hmm. as to what that is, because uh, uh, as David Graeber, who wrote the book, mm -hmm. Dead, first 5,000 years, and unfortunately he's no longer with us, uh, he liked to tell a story. It's not his story. Uh, he liked to remind us of one of the opening scenes from uh, Francis Ford Coppola's uh, Godfather, in which for those who, who you don't remember it or who haven't seen it, uh, there is this... Uh, grand wedding uh, the godfather's daughter is uh, being married and during the wedding reception the godfather is, is, is in his study and he receives various people that he patronizes um, and one of them um, comes to him with a request well all of them come with requests but this particular request was interesting apparently his daughter had been sexually abused by somebody and um, the request was to the godfather, um, will you see to it that he gets maimed, tortured, beaten up, killed, whatever, you know, something nasty, be done to him, uh, and offers him money. Says to the godfather, how much do you want? Um, I'll give you any, anything you want. And the godfather is incensed. You are going to pay me for this? No, you're not going to pay me for this. I'm going to do it and you will be in my debt. Mm -hmm. That leads me, you know, combining um, what Amartya Sen said to me, and also um, David Graeber's story coming out of the Godfather, to the, this notion of the title as 
debt as power. Because this is exactly what it is. If you think about it, any debt obligation is a promise. And as uh, Nietzsche famously said in his genealogy of morals, uh, you know, to breed an animal with the right to make promises, uh, is this not a paradoxical task? Nature has set itself in the case of humanity. Uh, if you think of debt as a promise that binds to some extent, uh, then suddenly debt is everywhere. Reciprocity is based on that. I do something for you now, and it is unspoken that, yes, well, you owe me. You'll have to do something for me one day in the future. And what, I mean, one way of looking at the history of humanity is and, 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 and social stratification and social class and social power and economic power, you know, who has the right to, to decide which promises are being kept and which promises are not being kept? Because as we know, after 2008, um, <laughs> you know, the, the bankers um, were bailed out, even though they had brought capitalism to its knees and as a result created circumstances out of which, you know, uh, billions of people suffered massively, um, and their debt obligations were simply not only wiped out, but um, they were repaid or paid for the damage that they did and for the debt obligations they did not. Uh, whereas others, you know, others, other people's um, um, uh, debt obligations are sacred. I remember Wolfgang Schäuble, the Minister of Finance, saying to me when I was explaining to him that, you know, Greece's debt is simply not going to be repaid, whether I like it or not, because an unpayable debt is not paid. Uh, so I was saying, you know, if you want to maximize how much money you get out of us, uh, you have to end the austerity which is crushing the incomes from which we have to repay you. And that, you know, you don't even, have, even need to be left-wing to say that. Uh, even a right-winger, a libertarian would say that. And he, he responded by saying, a debt is a debt is a debt. I said, no, it's not. The whole point about capitalism is that the debt is not sacred. Uh, capitalism broke off only when we had limited liability. <laughs> but of course, the question is, you know, whose uh, liability is limited and whose is not? Uh, I think I've said more than enough. Um, I hope I warmed you up a little bit. And now I'm going to ask Jawadi, who has invested so much academic effort in um, talking about debt and the economics of debt, uh, to, to take the button from me. Jawadi, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Yanis. So, you know, it's, it's what you said. Debt is power, but I would put it slightly different. Debt is an expression of the power. And exactly what you said, who gets to repay, who has to repay, who can avoid the repayment are all expressions of relative power. So, I mean, I wonder whether you tried to remind Wolfgang Schauble uh, when he was telling you all this about Germany's debt relief in 1951, when basically half of their debt was simply eradicated because, you know, they didn't have to repay any of it. And they had this wonderful uh, system whereby they only had to pay 3% of their export revenues as debt service yeah, in agreement. In the, the London conference, you mean. Exactly. So, you know, so Germany is a big beneficiary of this. And, and Germany was powerful at the time because the, the West wanted to see West Germany survive and thrive relative to the East. And because of the whole Cold War, post-war situation, Germany was a beneficiary. Uh, of course, memory is short, but I think that captures it perfectly, that it's not that all debt has to be repaid. In fact, as you know better than me, the, a huge amount of economic theory was devoted to looking at how can debt markets survive because debtors are the ones who will not repay. There's moral hazard of debtors. That how can you trust that they will repay? What you got, in fact, is a very complicated legal system that is so heavily skewed in favor of creditors, nationally and globally, that it's really putting the power imbalance massively against debtors and in favor of creditors. Except if you are, in fact, part of the financial system as a debtor, in which case you're part of that power, you know, you're part of the powerful side and you can get away with pretty much everything. So yeah, debt is very much an expression of power and it reinforces that power. And globally, of course, we know this, uh, globally, it's now complicated because it's not just governments and it's not just multilateral organizations and it's not just the big banks, but it's bondholders. 
And who was it who said that when they die, they want to be reborn as the bond market because then they will be all powerful. So it's, it's so complicated now that we have to rely, or rather the system has to rely on these legal systems that reinforce that power imbalance continuously and constantly put the screws on the debtors. Astra, debt collective, you have a lot of collected debt, do you? <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. It's really an honor to be here uh, to talk with um, comrades on this on this issue and and to hear from Jati and um, you know Giannis. I've read so much of your work on this subject, uh, and you already you know paid tribute to my friend David Graeber, who actually recruited me to the debt resistance movement. So I was already an angry debtor. I like so many um, people in the United States, I was weighted down by student loans after the financial crisis of 2008. My parents had lost their home. Uh, their home had been foreclosed on in the mortgage crisis. So I was angry, but I wasn't in a collective. I wasn't in a, a, a situation with others to do something about it. So David uh, brought me in. We were friends through our writing and organizing and being part of sort of the counterculture already. Uh, you know, and yeah, exactly as you said, you know, that is that is power. The question is power for whom? So the idea of the debt collective fundamentally taking inspiration from the labor movement is that debtors, just the way workers organize in the workplace to build power, debtors can also collectively turn their oppression into leverage and turn, um, turn their debts into economic power because those our debts are somebody's assets, right? They're on the books for someone else. So can we engage in strategies of collective negotiation? Can we demand uh, cancellation? And ultimately, can we build the political power to create a society where we don't have to debt finance our basic needs, right? Because if there was universal healthcare in the United States, there wouldn't be medical debt, right? If there was free education, there wouldn't be student loans. If people were paid a decent wage, there wouldn't be payday lenders. People wouldn't be putting their necessities on their credit cards. So it's that basic theory of trying to build power together. Uh, and it, we, you know, we live in a neoliberal economy. So sometimes the creditor that we're targeting is a private entity, a bank, but it's often the state. And those two things are merged, right? We know that they overlap in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, debt is power. I mean, one of the things about debt, it's it's ideological. It isn't just rational. It's not just about getting as much money from the debtor as you can, as you pointed out, Giannis. Uh, it's a power relationship based on the pretense of equality. There's always this idea that, you know, you sign the contract like an equal, right? Well, you sign the contract with the lender, fair and square, two equals, making a deal. It's never that way. If you're 16 or 17, as I was when I first signed my student loans, you know, I'm being told if I don't do this, I don't have a future. I'll never get a job. Uh, so many debtors go into debt contracts under duress. And that is, again, you know, a mother choosing to take out a payday loan at 400% interest because it's that or homelessness, right? Yeah. Uh, somebody taking out a $50,000 bail bond uh, to get a loved one out of, out of jail, right? That's, these, are, these are economic contracts uh, taken out under duress. So I guess, you know, one thing I'll say really quick is um, this is, you know, I was inspired. The first idea I thought of that politically was actually uh, back in the days of the global justice movement and thinking about um, the, the push for the cancellation of sovereign debts and a debt jubilee. It took me a while to realize we could take some of that politics and apply it to our own lives. It took actually Occupy Wall Street for that, uh, that idea to come around. And I, you know, I had no idea just how central the power of debt is to the United States. You can describe the constitution of this country as a creditor's constitution. The founding fathers of the United States were extremely concerned about protecting the rights of the majority, and the, sorry, the rights of the minority, the property owning white minority here. Uh, but they weren't just, uh, they weren't just concerned with poor people, they were really concerned with debtors and debt revolts which were happening. Uh, and so there's a lot of you know, stuff from the founding fathers, you know, from, from James Madison, for example, saying, you know, we don't want people to get too empowered and, get, and, and demand uh, the wicked project of debt abolition is the phrase, right? I mean, so you see all of these concerns early on in this country that if debtors got too much power, they would demand debt cancellation. Um, and so you, to, you know, to this point that all debts don't have to be repaid, I, I will just say that Thomas Jefferson, for example, wrote about how debts shouldn't last very long. 
they should extinguish after you know a generation and after a person's life they shouldn't be uh, in perpetuity and but that was only for people like him because he also wrote letters recommending that one way to to dispossess indigenous people to steal indigenous land would be to drive them into debt right to drive uh native americans into debt and then they would be forced to give up their land so oh, just this incredible recognition right there that debt is an instrument of power an instrument of dispossession that certain people get debt cancellation certain people don't and we've saw that in the 2008 financial crisis we saw that 20 in 2020 when there was a whole lot of debt relief for corporate debtors and what regular people got here was just a payment moratorium okay you don't have to pay your student loans for for the year uh you know, we'll uh, we'll pause some collections, but cancellation, you know, is just uh, too far. Only the only people who get their debts forgiven, their their loans uh, written off, are you know corporations. Um, and so, you know, we saw a lot of corporate debt relief for uh, meat packing companies, fossil fuel companies, and the like. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Jayadi, can you bring us up to date uh, with um, uh, what's happening? Um, in, in now during the pandemic, uh, especially in, develop, in the developing world, uh, where we see debt rising um, almost exponentially, uh, where the local elites celebrate the net transfer of um, capital to their countries. They portray this as a, 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 as a vote of confidence in their administrations, in their companies, and so on. Um, you've written extensively about that, and I would like you to, you know, to inform us about these new kinds of imperialism that we experience, especially during the pandemic. You know, even before the pandemic, there was this massive increase in the debt of developing countries because developing countries were told you really have to have foreign savings to have your own investment increase. That's the only way your development project is going to occur. So you have to lay yourself open. You have to do everything you can to attract foreign capital of all kinds, not just direct investment, but portfolio investment and especially also debt. And suddenly all that debt was available also because in the developed world, before, but especially after the global financial crisis, I mean, it was just sloshing with liquidity, right? There was massive expansionary monetary policies in the US and the European Union. So there was all this money looking around for any profitability. And so very, very low interest rates, huge amounts of money. You go to every developing country and offer loans. And so they were encouraged to create bond markets, which earlier were not that important. They were encouraged to open up many, many more types of debtors to access this international borrowing, including, you know, small companies, private companies in your own countries, not just governments. All of that happened. And so we had a huge explosion of debt even before the pandemic. Then, of course, in the pandemic, now, you have to remember that people in the North tend to talk about the pandemic really about how it's affected them. And the first phase did affect them. But economically, it affected developing countries much, much worse. It, it damaged them much more even in the first phase. They had less, less fiscal space to spend money in the first phase as well. So while you saw huge expansion, 25, 30% of GDP in some countries in the developed world, you don't see that. You see four to six percent in the emerging markets and two percent in the low-income countries. So really, very little fiscal expansion. Most of our workers are informal, which means there's no legal or social protection. It so it was a really bad scene. Now, in that situation, your export revenues have collapsed. Your other revenues have collapsed. Your governments are unable to repay the debts that already existed. So they have to get a moratorium. They have to get some kind of relief. And the idea would have, the sensible thing at that point would have been to say, we have to write off a large part of this debt. This is an extra, extraordinary, exceptional circumstance, once in a lifetime event. This is much more so than Germany faced in 1951, a time when you have to basically write off a significant part of the loans. That didn't happen. Instead, G7, whose inactivity we are continuously seeing even to the latest meeting, G7 decides that they're going to do a debt service suspension initiative, which is going to offer only the low-income countries, very small number, 68 countries, I think, were eligible, uh, to be uh, 
to push their debt repayments. In other words, not a standstill, not that you forget about the interest payments over this period, but just a moratorium, which basically means that the same interest gets added to your principal. You have to pay much more at the end. And it was a worse situation. So push it down for a year. It's just been extended till the end of December 2021. What's going to happen in 2022? You have this mountain facing you, which you cannot repay. I mean, it's absolutely evident. There are countries today, Argentina, that cannot repay. Middle-income countries. This, by the way, was only for the low-income countries. But there are many middle-income countries that are not in a position to repay. And yet, there is no talk of a substantial restructuring of these debts. And when you try and do it individually, the legal problems that I mentioned to you, you know, these debts, 90% of all debt contracts are uh, either in New York or London, the city of London. So you face the legal processes there, which are horrifying and very, very anti-debtor. So as a result, all these developing countries are sitting now on this mountain of debt, which is going to be, frankly, unpayable. And it's not just the low-income countries, it's also the middle-income countries. So then the G7 said, OK, this is not working. Let's try and add the private creditors into this. Let's, we have a, a common framework in which we will also try and bring in private creditors. Surprise, surprise, the private creditors didn't join. They're not interested, okay? And there was nothing they, that the G7 thought of, the governments thought of, to actually force them. There are things they can do, but they didn't do those. We can come to those later. So they said, we'll encourage you to come to us for this debt suspension. Any country that did that immediately got its credit ratings affected so that you would be downgraded and then you would have, find it even harder to access new capital. Ethiopia tried to do that, bam, got a credit downgrade. Naturally, that scares off everybody else. So even the countries that are eligible are not willing to apply for this initiative. But anyway, it doesn't do very much. It just adds to your problem a few months down the line or a year down the line. And finally, final point I want to make, you know, is this, there's this whole idea that, it's, that at least you're getting that net capital inflow. That's also not true. And it's very expensive net capital inflow because what happens when you try and open up so that you can attract all this foreign capital is that you have to liberalize your domestic finance and you have to liberalize your capital account. So as a result, you get inflows, pretty large inflows, especially in these emerging markets, but you also get very large outflows. And here's the terrible thing. The inflows get a very high rate of return because interest rates are higher in our countries for you know, risk factors and all of that. When we send capital out, when developing countries send capital to the North, the interest rates are low, ridiculously low. Yeah, so whether it's US treasury bills or whatever else you're buying, your interest rates are way below what you are paying out to the foreigners. So there are studies that are shown, Yilmaz Akius, the Turkish economist who was at UNCLAD, he's shown that actually Developing countries that are doing this are losing on average 2.4% of GDP every year just on this interest rate differential. And some countries are losing as much as 5-6% of GDP every year. Some countries that have huge inflows are not even getting net inflows because they have huge outflows. So it's weird because then when you have a debt crisis, not only have you faced this problem that you didn't get any benefits from that period of contracting debt, but then they will use that debt to push down the most disgusting austerity on you, which you are only too familiar with, which will also cause you to weaken your global asset position even further. It's um, a very smart way to conduct class war and imperialism, right? There's no failure here. It could yeah. be a, a grave error on our part uh, to moralize and to accuse them of being unethical uh, or being inefficient. Uh, they are doing exactly what they are planning to do all along. Uh, you asked me before about Volkan Schäuble, and let me just, before I bring Astra back in, tell you that you know, months after he initially said to me, a debt is a debt is a debt, he admitted to me that, yeah, yeah of course, we are not going to get uh, our money back from Greece. And to, it, 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 he even admitted that uh, it was cruel and unusual punishment that what was being inflicted upon upon the majority of our people. And at that point, I, I couldn't believe my ears. And I said to him, so why are you doing it? 
He said, don't you understand? I'm sending a message to Paris. They cannot have the Deutschmark um, mm -hmm. and conduct their own uh, fiscal policy. So, you know, deep down, of course, they, they're not, yeah, for them, it is just a chess game. And they use that uh, strategically to divide countries, uh, to divide populations within countries. Uh, and, and for them, it's simply all by other means. Um, and uh, and the local oligarchy, right? While the GDP of a developing country is shrinking exactly as you described it, the local oligarchy's own GDP or wealth is um, going through the roof because austerity for them is a way of extracting value from from the majority. Uh, so, Astra, how do we? What, what what kind of politics are you suggesting? for countering what is a very well considered class war against the many and actually i've got i've got another question for you astra as well so i'll i'll add to yanis question my question which is uh, in a way um i think of de um, debt as um in a way you have to think about it as sort of from an abolitionist perspective in a way right it's not only about debt it's it's a it's a kind of society we're living in and it's it's the the fact that people are in debt for you know to study, uh, for health, for things they shouldn't be in debt in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. So that's in a way my sort of follow up thing. Yeah, no, there's so much here. I mean, I think absolutely, you know, I could not agree more that debt has a, a very anti democratic component. It's a it's a it's an anti democratic weapon, and it has a disciplinary function. So these loans to you know, countries come with conditions attached, but that those insights apply at the level of, you know, regular borrowers too. debt disciplines us because when you are buried in debt, you can't make the choices you would otherwise make. Right. You are you are harshly penalized if you miss a payment. Right. I mean, that is something, um, you know, if, if you are de if you default on certain kinds of debt, it can mean that you can't access what limited social services there are. It means that your your license, your professional license can get taken away. Your driving your driver's license can get taken away. Your Social Security can be garnished. Your tax uh, tax returns can be garnished. Right. So it's very punitive. You can uh, you know, your credit score. So just like these countries have credit ratings, your personal credit score tanks, and then you can't get a job, you can't find an apartment, et cetera. So it's a very, it's, it's uh, you know, absolutely a system that is designed to discipline, to divide and conquer, and to suppress democracy. Um, so yes, absolutely, we, we speak consciously of debt abolition, and abolition uh, in the sense uh, going back and conjuring the great historian of Reconstruction, W.E.B. Du Bois, who wrote about abolition democracy. So abolition democracy is a world without, <laughs> without these predatory relationships and with the things we need to survive. So instead of predatory lending, we'd like to see socially productive credit. We know people need credit. We want we want people to be able be able to expand the po the possibilities of the present, but not on exploitative terms, not on these anti democratic terms. Right? Uh, we think people are entitled to you know. Uh, again, all those public goods that you just mentioned, so that they don't have to debt finance these things, uh, debt finance, you know, their basic survival. Uh, so the politics we're suggesting is one that, you know, challenges the phony morality around debt, because you said, Giannis, no, we can't moralize about this, but they moralize to us, they being the lenders, the creditors, right? So, you know, we reject even the language of debt forgiveness. We don't need to be forgiven for anything because we haven't done anything wrong. We're demanding justice in the form of debt abolition for individuals and for countries, right? For, you know, and, and, and abolishing the system. So we reject the language of forgiveness. Um, and we'd like to reclaim the, the language of credit. It's trust, right? It's trust in each other. <laughs> it's not about just whether uh, you know, um, we're profitable to these banks. I think this is one lesson from David Graeber. Uh, if we want to kind of really honor his radical vision. I think he wanted us not only to not see ourselves as debtors, but to see ourselves as creditors, right? Like, you know, we are entitled to things. We're entitled to a decent life. Um, and, you know, and there's no shame in that. So the politics of the debt collective, I mean, again, we're taking inspiration from the labor movement. Um, and so, you know, part of the work we do with people is that psychological thing of first saying, you know what, you can't, you're anxious about your bills, you can't pay, uh, you know, you can't um, pay your debts. Okay, it's not your fault. 
and if you band together, we can change this. So we uh, work on different kinds of uh, you know debts. We have a, a work on bail debt and rent that's launching uh, soon, but we've really made our mark around the issue of student debt in the United States. We launched the first ever student debt strike in 2015, and we have won over $2 billion with the B of debt cancellation for students who mostly went to these for-profit predatory, uh, predatory colleges. So in the US, we all think everybody goes to Harvard. It's not true. A few thousand people do. Most people go to for-profit colleges that prey on working class, poor people, disproportionately uh, black and brown people, single mothers, disabled people, and so on, and get access to public uh, money, federal student loans, and, and max them out. Uh, and we've put, the, you know, we forced Joe Biden over years of activism, we've been doing this for 10 years, you know, again, since Occupy Wall Street, to run on uh, the promise of a minimum of $10,000 of immediate student debt cancellation. Not enough, but to have a centrist Democrat at least say debt cancellation <laughs> is, you know, progress because we, well, you know, as you all know, we always have to point back to, oh, there were some loan modifications in the New Deal period. Oh, and then, you know, in the ancient world, they did debt jubilees. So the idea that we could have, uh, you know, some mass debt relief to point to uh, in the year 2021, I think would be a, a victory, a kind of, um, you know, a chink in their wall that we can keep building for it and to show people, yeah, guess what? Your debts can be canceled. So that's what we're organizing for. We organize, we have tens of thousands of members. We invite debtors and their allies to join us. And our thing is, you know, you have to build power. One of our, one of our lines is, you know, you're not in debt because you live beyond your means. You are in debt because you are denied the means to live. And so, but we don't get, win those means without coming together. Our other slogan, I'll end it here, is you are not alone, A space L-O-A-N. In other words, you know, you're not isolated. You're not the only one to be having these struggles, um, but we need that collectivity uh, to win. And I think one thing the Greece example showed us, Giannis, is that one country is not enough, right? We need solidarity between nations as well if we're going to really tackle uh, tackle the power structures we're up against. You know, I think, could I, could I come in here? Yeah, yeah, I think Astra said something really important also just now. I mean, many important things, but this particular one, that it's basically because you're denied the means to live, that, that you are, you know, you're living beyond your means, so-called. And that's the critical thing. That's the intertwining of debt with neoliberalism, because this particular historical phase of the explosion of debt globally is very, very closely linked to neoliberalism. Across the world, wages are declining as a share of national income in the US, right? Median wages haven't gone up for 30, 40 years, which basically means when you had your booms in the 90s and then in the 2000s, it was not booms based on higher wages, it was booms based on more debt to the workers. And across the world, you will find this. It's not, it's certainly in terms of, you know, what the wage shares of income are, that's, across, that's true. But it's also the denial of public services, the fact that more and more of what's used to be seen as the responsibility of the state is now seen to be delivered by private, usually profit-oriented or commercially-oriented providers, which means you're paying for each of these what you cannot afford things that you would have taken for granted. I mean, in the developing world, we're even paying for drinkable water now. It's just everything you pay for, things that you, you would take for granted as something that governments deliver. So it, you re, exactly what you say, when you need coalitions, you have to get to the broader point that people are indebted because the neoliberal strategy has effectively denied you your rights as a citizen, the basic socioeconomic rights. and. In some countries, it never, you never get there. In other countries, what you had is destroyed. So I think that's an integral part of understanding the current debt problems. But, but Jayane, is yeah. it neoliberalism or is it something far more fundamental in capitalism? Because you, you, the, 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 the argument that both you and Astra made, mm -hmm. that it's not that people live beyond their means, it is that they are denied the means. Isn't that the basis of capitalism. If you think about how capitalism emerged in England and Scotland in the 18th century, it emerged through the enclosures. Yeah. What were the enclosures? It was the eviction of yeah. the peasants from the land, okay? The uh, enclosures that prevented them from going, going back to the land to cultivate it. The replacement of the peasants with sheep so that wool could be traded 
with India particularly, right? Um, so the denial of means is the prerequisite for the creation of a proletariat that doesn't have alternatives, and that is the foundation of capitalism. This is not, there's nothing liberal about that. The whole liberal capitalist um, you know, mode of production, distribution and exchange has been based on this. So it's nothing new or something liberal, it's part of capitalism. So is it possible to allow people access to means of existence and subsistence and life while we live under capitalist uh, conditions? Okay, this is, this is a big tough one, but I would say, yes, you're right, obviously, in a very fundamental sense. But it's also that capitalism is not the same everywhere, nor has it been the same always. It goes through phases. You know, there are phases in the North, the so-called welfare state kind of capitalism, which, while it had many other problems, it did enable certain kinds of public provision that many people took for granted. The Scandinavian model also similarly is capitalism, but it relies on a different kind of institutional arrangements. So I, I would say that we need to differentiate it a little bit. We have to nuance it. We can't say it's all capitalism and therefore until we overthrow capitalism, we can't do anything. Because I think you, you can do something even now. You have to, as, as Astra is trying to do as well, that you can make changes even in this at least br bring the beast back a little bit into a cage. Uh, do not allow completely unregulated. To transform it will take much, much more. But let's at least begin by preventing it from going completely rampant. Because there is the other issue, right? The, the, it's a predator thing. That capitalism has just grown so big and so untrammeled and so powerful that it's actually too powerful for its own good. It is destroying all the things that made it you know, that the, the limitations in a way that an, enabled it to proceed and reproduce. So well, the predator is eating up too much of the prey, basically. But also, I, I mean, capitalism um, didn't invent debt. We know that these onerous debt relationships precede capitalism and there were debt revolts in the ancient world. So there's, it's, it's a very almost ancient blunt instrument, right? And debt has been used by capitalism. But I think Jayati's right. You know, what we like to say at the Debt Collective is that as, as the economy evolved, so looking at the 70s and the way the economy was financialized and debt became more central to the way, the way that individuals were forced to debt finance what should be public goods, that reorganization of the economy, it's still capitalism, has opened up new ways for debtors to organize themselves. Right. So in other words, you know, we don't live uh, in a in a situation where many of us who are in the debt collective can join an industrial trade union. We don't have those kinds of jobs. So we're trying to think in a strategic way. How has how has the economy and society and our politics shifted? And, you know, how does that how can we turn these these conditions into opportunities for organizing and building power so that we can ultimately, uh, you know, uh, build the power required to transcend capitalism, because that is, I think, you know, that is our goal. We're very explicit about that, but we try to meet people where they are, right? And to go, yes, you know, your daily struggles, you know, actually that's a political problem. And now can you imagine changing the wider world? And, you know, here's how we can win things along the way. If we get $800 back in your pocket because we've canceled a water debt or a power bill or 50,000 because we've canceled your student debt, you know, that shows you things can change and maybe you'll join this bigger movement. Okay, um, another, uh, yeah. you know, also there's a huge role played in a way, I still kind of saying that as well, by the whole legal arrangement thing. I mean, I come from a country where we had bonded laborers and what are they? They're really slaves who are created by a debt system. Again, predating capitalism, but you gave some, you know, poor people loans, they couldn't repay. They had to promise to pay their labor power. And if not them, then their children. And it went on for generations because obviously compounded interest and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we had huge numbers of people who were effectively debt bonded laborers. And it's a legal change that enabled, I mean, basically you had to have a law that says you cannot demand payment in the form of labor for any debt contract. Now, it doesn't change the production relations. It doesn't change the nature of property, but it changes something which doesn't allow debt bondage. So, in other words, legal arrangements play a very important role, you know, in all of these things. They certainly do. They certainly do. And you, you, when you talked about uh, caging the beast, yeah. um, 
that, that was Bretton Woods, wasn't it? Because between 1950 mm. and 1971, at least, yeah. uh, finance was severely circumscribed. Mm. Uh, suddenly, uh, mm. bankers b- b- were constrained. They couldn't do any, almost anything. Banking became boring. Yeah, uh, they had capital controls. They, they they couldn't gamble with other people's money, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but you saw how capitalism shook off these shackles uh, by effectively destroying Bretton Woods and opening up. That's mm-hmm. what neoliberalism is—the ideology that was needed to 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 um, you know to, to to support the unleashing of banking from the shackles of Bretton Woods. But you are quite right. There are things you can do to restrain the beast. But my fear is that the beast will always find ways of uh, breaking loose from those shackles, um, especially when society has been lulled into feeling that, um, you know, we have constrained it. Because we are moving towards the last 20 minutes, um, would, you, would you like to comment on uh, the effects on the power of debt and the class power of debt uh, on and f- vice versa um, influences from developments in digital technologies, create the creation of platform capitalism of you know the Amazons and the Googles and the Facebooks, and the manner in which, for instance, uh, you know you you have this what I call the fantasy of uh, liberation through you know cryptocurrencies. Because we are moving in, in, in a direction where a lot of young people think that now they can be liberated from all those things simply through technology. I consider this to be a dangerous fantasy, but it's not clear to them that it is. So. Yeah, no, this is another huge, huge area. And I, I mean, I think, okay, cryptocurrency, let me just begin with that one. Cryptocurrency is a bubble. Okay, it's a bubble like Dutch tulips were a bubble and South Seas were a bubble. It's a bubble. There is really nothing to it. And okay, you can have periodic eruptions of it. Digital currencies, yeah, they will exist. And now more and more central banks are going to follow China, which let's face it is actually, you know, showing the way in a way about the state control over it. I think the digital revolution has, in many ways, is actually deeply terrifying. In uh, of course, it's many, many advantages, so many, like the fact that we can all be together on the screen, that we don't have to get into all the, the advantages, everybody knows those, but they enable a degree of 360 degree surveillance, which I think is unmatched in the history of the world. I mean, even in the most authoritarian, totalitarian regimes, there were little slips in, in you know, the ways in which you could get away from a system. That is getting harder and harder because now you have everything from facial recognition technology to a complete history of all of your activities, movements, transactions, relationships, contacts, etc. And it's available widely. It's privatized, of course, and that but and but it's available to states and it's available to large corporations. The idea that corporations are going to only use it to entice you into consumption and so on, that's nonsense. We know, in again, in my own country, in India, we know that companies sell data even to interested parties who want to know, for example, how many Muslims are there living in which houses so that if there's a pogrom or a riot, we can go and attack those first. They actually give you information on student protesters, women who have been... Uh, you know, sitting peacefully on streets, that information is given to vigilante groups who can then go and attack them in their homes and etc. So it's being used in all kinds of ways. It's not simply. And then, of course, there's the role of the state, which, you know, the sort of um, Huxleyan world, you know, those of, of complete control over people. So yes, I think these are all huge and massive fears. And I think it also creates a different kind of concern with regard to protest. Because, you know, I mean, um, so much protest today relies on the very same modes that also enable the monitoring, surveillance, and control. And so it's really, I think it's one of those things where it's a question of which one can be a little bit ahead of the other in terms of uh, forms of mobilizing and then dealing with the repressions that will follow. But I come back to the issue 
that you see the trouble is that all this is a bit too successful for its own good i repeat this point i think it's absolutely true capitalism has been too successful or rather large capital has been too successful to be viable it's actually not viable i mean look in the us this is a dead capitalism it's living on life support from the state it's huge injections of first central bank money and then the government money which is keeping us capitalism alive so it's not in that sense a system which is really has any of the dynamism and so on that marx talked about it's actually a big dead body lying over everybody and the real question is you know what's around there to push it out of the way well as some people know i've been claiming now for a number of years that uh, like 1991 killed off socialism mm. at least communism uh, but also social democracies um, mm. come up as came in 1991 2008 killed off capitalism and i mm. think that we have a new far more exploitative and extractive mm. system which i call techno feudalism but this is not the time to talk about it astra as a younger person than us um, what do you say to those who uh, are so enthusiastic with the idea that look our debt bondage our reliance on the banking system our reliance on central banks on government and all that we no longer need to worry about it because you know bitcoin is here or um, you know uh, ethereum or some cryptocurrency yeah well in 2009 i wrote an article called surfing the net but s e r f i n g so like surf so playing with your feudal <laughs> metaphor so uh and i wrote a book called the people's platform uh which is a political economy of the economy of the internet that came out in 2014 so i've i've been um on the techno uh i wouldn't say techno skeptic but the 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 critical side of the debate for quite a long time and my point has always been pretty simple which is that it's not just about the technology we have to pay attention to the underlying political economy and the the context these tools emerge in um you know i think this the crypto hype is interesting you know it's frustrating but you know you see people's frustrations with their the economy as it is right so there's all this sort of misapprehensions about the way money works the way fiat currency works and i mean to me this is part of the problem we don't have a robust organized left that are actually talking to people about these issues and saying you know the problem isn't um this isn't one that we can cryptocurrency or speculate away right because all cryptocurrency i mean it's just basically um speculation i think it's very interesting how in the press you know it's referred to as kind of the a democratizing tendency right it's democratizing uh you know access to basically uh you know a a casino <laughs> you know this is not my idea of democratizing finance or democratizing technology but i more than cryptocurrency i guess i'm i'm worried about what's called fintech which is the merging of the big financial sector and technology because you know we're talking about neoliberalism right part of what neoliberalism is is there's been all this primitive accumulation and closure and now they're finding new ways to dig in and and profit right by burying us in in these debt uh relationships by financializing the economy you can kind of see that with these technology companies where they've got all the users they can get in the United States there's no more people to use Facebook so how do they more deeply monetize their users well by incorporating fintech so now you have facebook you know offering its its version of currency you have uber offering loans to its drivers you have apple car you know apple offering credit cards so then you've got this you've got these tech companies now becoming financial companies and so they're they are then protected by the federal government right they're now they they are they could now you know access bailouts that's you know that this is the concern is that it's the merging of these bohemets in ways that are really worrying i mean i guess the the things i've written about in the debt collective has a manifesto called can't pay won't pay the case for economic disobedience and debt abolition and i wrote a chapter in that that's about technology and why these trends matter for debtors and um so one thing is you know the return of well when i guess how i'd phrase it is that these tools what what these digital tools do is they repeal 100 years of hard won progress so you know uber doesn't have to pay a minimum wage it can violate labor laws because it's you know innovative uh and they also in a similar way violate the limited consumer protections we have so we have you know a sort of consumer protection regime in the united states set up in the 1970s while all these new high tech companies you know are figuring out ways to provide people consumer scores as opposed to credit scores and therefore they don't have to follow any of these laws 
So we are ranked and scored in all of these ways that we can't see, and we have no legal means to even correct them, to know about them, uh, let alone to figure out what's being, what, what decisions they're being used in. So, you know, and we know they're being used in really um, important decisions, like about what ads we see for educational opportunities, for jobs, for housing. And so we see, um, you know, all sorts of digital discrimination. People talk about the return of redlining online. Uh, one scholar calls it the rise of Jim Code as opposed to Jim, you know, playing off of the phrase mm -hmm. Jim Crow. And so these are really worrying um, trend, trends. And what we need to help people understand is, you know, yeah, crypto is not going to save us from this. We need public, <laughs> we need public thing, you know, public Venmos, public payments, we need, uh, you know, public banking, um, that these are the sorts mm -hmm. of things. The technology could play a part of those, but ultimately it's a political fight. We're not going to just hack our way uh, into a techno-utopian paradise. We're way more likely, I think, I agree, to be led into a techno-feudal feudal one. And that's it's a powerful and worrying metaphor. We're entering the last uh, few minutes, and I want to give you, two the opportunity to close. Let's go back to our title um, in order to return to the place we started <laughs> from the, for the first time. Um, data's power. Power to do what? Power to compel people to work for you. That's what you know. The whole point is of capitalism and of exploitative societies and pre-capitalist societies too. Debt as power to compel. That's that's the the main issue. But what I'd like you to comment, or I'm, I'm, I'm using this as an opportunity to egg you on uh, towards the end, um, to, to comment on the. Uh, effects of money because money is not neutral of course it makes no difference whether you are being exploited in dollars euros rupiah or bitcoin but in a sense who has the capacity to print the money and who has the capacity to be excused of debt obligations is an essential part of the distribution of power to compel uh, so take it from there Money neutrality, debt, um, who has the right to print it? Uh, and how do you democratize money? Bitcoin cannot democratize money simply because it's completely oligarchic by construction. Some people have a lot of it, uh, the early adopters, and the ones who have a lot of dollars to buy them to begin with, or a lot of electricity power to mine it. So how do we end this conversation about debt as monetary power? To compel others to do stuff. So, as I said, money is about power, and international money is about international power. And of course, those of us in the developing world have known this forever, right? Because there's a ladder of currencies. I mean, you know it. Even when you think you have the same currency, it turns out you don't. And so, I think that part we know. That, but I would say that the causation doesn't go from money to power; it goes from power to money. That the money is really, if you like, the veil, it's the expression of all of this, of the power. And of course, it is then used in different ways, and debt, just as that is used in these different ways. I think the critical thing here, really, for us to then think of, you know, how do we dismantle this? How do we democratize any of this? Is to look at the legal and regulatory structures. Because, you know, so many of the things that even Astra was describing, like the Uber drivers, that's a regulatory failure. It's the failure of the state to recognize that Uber has a responsibility to the drivers as employees, or that you know Amazon can treat uh, its workers as individual service delivery people who are on individual contracts, you know, piece rate, and so on. These are regulatory failures. Similarly, it is legal systems that are imposing certain requirements on whether it is Ecuador and Argentina, or it is Bangladesh, or you know, uh, Ethiopia or Uganda today forcing them to accept certain rules. So I think a lot of the focus of the progressive movement, I think, has to be right now on dismantling the legal and regulatory structures that enable these kinds of inequality in debt and in a whole range of other things, but certainly and absolutely in debt. I, I, I don't think we can talk about this in terms of just policy measures. It's really about the legal and institutional and also rejection of a lot of the case law that exists that uh, absolutely prohibits the rights of debtors in a way, because all the judgments have been so skewed in favor of creditors in both the city of London and New York. So 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I like, I like the formulation that that it's power first because that's you know most of what my work is focused focused on. I mean, it's it's you know, pe- there's there are so many myths to kind of bust, and when you're trying to get people to see things in different ways. So before Occupy Wall Street, the dominant conversation in the United States about debt was about the debt ceiling. Right. So the Republicans owned the conversation around debt. And the idea was that entitlements, you know, are are driving this country into debt and the national debt is exploding. And therefore, we need to cut Social Security and cut what limited social services there there are. And so, you know, we've been part of, you know, pushing back against that and saying, no, actually, entitlements aren't the problem. And, And the United States is in a very privileged position where it can print money. But that doesn't that that monetary so- sovereignty and the way that the U.S. dollar is a kind of imperial tool is a unique thing that we also need to challenge, right? So we're trying to do this at once and cultivate an internationalist perspective because that's where the, the left needs to be internationalist. It has to be. You know, we have to see that we have common enemies, we have common oppressions. There are Uber drivers all over the world, right? Yeah, you know, uh, debtors all over the world, um, and, and to to get that that big perspective shift and ultimately to, to build, build the power uh, that's required because we can have all the beautiful plans and proposals in the world. If we don't have the power to push for them, then we won't ever get them. Um, but definitely trying to, to build in that, um, uh, to, to displace just a sort of American centric view because yeah, sure. We could have nice things <laughs> here, uh, but that's, we want, we want a lot more than that. Let's finish off with a facetious question. Jayanti, let's say that you had a magic wand and you could change one thing in the next two minutes. What would it be? One thing? One uh, thing. One wish that oh you could, God. you know, about anything. <laughs> and, you, and, and the time is counting. It's counting international, down. international law and legal codes relating to contracts. There you are. <laughs> I mean, politically, I mean, I don't know. I guess I'd, I'd magically make climate change not a threat. Um, but you know, personally, I'd go back in time and see Nina Simone in concert or something like that. <laughs> I was expecting you to say that something happens and all records of debts are wiped out. So well, that the, the thing is, I believe that the thing is, the money. to your to your That's point, you got it. You got it. This, which is that you know. We might be able to cage the beast a bit, but if people aren't organized to maintain those victories, right, then we'll lose them. So you erase debts, but we're still in this capitalist system. They start accumulating the next day. I mean, this is why I believe you really have to build power from the ground up, engage people. There are no shortcuts. My answer, based on what Astra said. Yeah. If the one thing I would change is that finally people across the world get it. Mm-hmm. That's the greatest power um, <laughs> to bestow upon the people. Yeah. An understanding of the way that their powerlessness yeah. is being reproduced. Thank you both. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. I, I'm sure our audience did. Frank. I mean, what do you mean to say? Um, that was like amazing. I actually learned up. a lot. And, you know, I, I'm, and I'm wrapping it up. Than, what comes next? That, we're not sure yet, Yanis, right? Like we, I sent an email today that I won't disclose to uh, the four of you asking if we should do one in July or if we should just take a break over the summer. So potentially we'll have one on around July 15th. We don't know the topic yet, but um, it might actually be on sort of global Why don't warming. We it? Why don't we ask the audience to tell us what they want? You just did. You just did it. Yeah. Okay. There you well, go. I mean, except if you know, they will have. We'll decide anyway. We will decide. But if you want to tell us, you don't us have to say that. Commenting, you, you know, we're Democrats. Pretend that we'll, we're uh, Yeah. <laughs> we'll open the thing to the, to you know, to the, the mass. But we'll the decide. Mass. You know, it's pretty much decided anyway. But still, comment and let us know what you want to what you want to do. But anyway, huge thanks. Um, Yanis, Astra, Jayati, it's been amazing. Um, that's the end of the show. Um, have a good day, Astra and Jayati. Have a good evening, Yanis, and um, we will see you soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye.
la soledad empajona al corazón se iguala desde aquel día en que mi longuita se fue huyendo para donde marcharía esta longuita cuando volverá Han pasado ya seis cosechas, en el campo solo hay rastrojo, con tu partida has dejado en mi alma solo abrojos, y a la rama de los sauces se inclinaron más al río, para donde marcharía, esta longuita cuando volverá. Esta longuita cuando volverá.